0: Welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am your host, Anna Marsh, and today I'm going to talk about exercise. This episode is part one of a two-part series that I wanted to do on exercise. In this first part, I'll be covering a little bit about how to approach exercise If you have fatigue, and this is just a more general understanding of how you can think about exercise if you do have chronic fatigue syndrome or you are experiencing exercise challenges like post exertional malaise. In the second part, which will be the next episode, I'll talk a little bit about building exercise tolerance and capacity. And in that episode, I'd really love to share a bit about my personal journey and how I personally built up my exercise. What I found worked, what I found didn't work, little things that I found made the journey a bit easier. Um, I've got a lot to share on that but also just to say that everybody's journey is different. But in this episode what I'm going to touch on is just a framework for getting started. And there will be a time, depending on where you are in your journey, where exercise may just not be the priority at all. There are times when people experience health challenges where they just need to rest. If you think about how you feel, if you maybe got a flu or a virus, I had COVID recently in the summer, which is obviously an acute viral infection. And, you know, in those times when we are very unwell, we just need to rest because all our energy is going towards helping the body to overcome the challenges or the threats that it is experiencing. And obviously we know in chronic illness, sometimes the body can get stuck in that threat cycle and we need to use tools to help the body move on and find resolution. But there may be times in your life where you just need to rest. And so if you're listening to this podcast, chomping at the bit to maybe get a little bit more exercise back in your life, my first invitation is just to reflect on whether or not it is the time right now for you to be thinking about exercise and just be deeply honest with yourself. For me, prior to my chronic fatigue experience, exercise was such a passion of mine. It was probably also a coping mechanism, how I supported my nervous system. And perhaps at times on reflection, I overdid it on the exercise front. But I always just wanted to exercise. I just loved it so much. I loved being outside. It was such a big part of my life. And I tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed so many times trying to get my exercise capacity back. And very often I just tried to do too much and I didn't have a framework. I didn't have an understanding of what was happening in my body and, um, constantly took things too far. I was definitely more of an over which is something I'll talk about in a moment. And, um, you know, hindsight is 2020. I can see how much I was just pushing myself too much and I was trying too hard in the early stages. And so hopefully if that's you or you resonate with that, this podcast will be an insight for you or a supportive tool for you just to think about your exercise perhaps in a different way. So I'd like to start out by saying that no one knows your body better than you. And I have clients who will speak to me and say, you know, their partner or their um, family members are just telling them they should just push through. And if they just maybe keep on going and do a little bit more, they'll sort of get through to the other side of whatever they're experiencing. And I actually do think there are times in your recovery where pushing through can be helpful. But that's usually in the much later stages, and that's actually something I'll talk about in the next episode. But in the early stages of your fatigue recovery, i probably say 9.9 times out of 10, pushing through is not going to be the answer. So it's your responsibility to honor where you are, and nobody else can tell you where you are. In my own recovery journey, I would Google and read things and, you know, listen to other people's recovery stories and what they did, or, you know, Google workouts for chronic fatigue syndrome online. But sometimes even the smallest thing could really give me the most awful post-exertional malaise. And I think that's probably due to the mold toxicity that I had, but there's just no way that I could take the formula that somebody else was doing and replicate it. I had to find my own formula and you'll have to find your own formula too. And I worked with a physio who was very great about setting me programs to do, but all of those programs gave me post-exertional malaise because it was just not appropriate for my body at that time. There were other things that I needed to do. And so really you can follow all the templates and all the strategies. But at the end of the day, your body is going to give you the feedback and you're going to have to meet your body where it's at. So then once you are prepared to meet your body where it's at, it's also really important that you know what your coping style is. And I mentioned that I was an over-coper but we also get under copers. So an over coper will be somebody who tends to push things to the edges and beyond. And they tend to always take things a little bit too far. They always tend to overdo things. And I mentioned that exercise for me was such a big coping mechanism I had used it for a very long time in my life to feel in control to regulate my nervous system to blow off fight or flight energy and therefore when I couldn't do it anymore I was left with all those uncomfortable feelings in my body that I would usually try and blow out with the exercise instead of integrate which is a whole story for another day but when I could no longer use exercise as a coping mechanism, that was very uncomfortable for me and it felt very out of control. So then when I tried to exercise or I tried to test and see things what I see what I could do, I would always just take things too far and then end up in that boom and crash cycle, which we probably all know very well. And so what happens is when someone is over coping from an exercise perspective, obviously, there's lots of different ways we can over cope. But from an exercise perspective, we're doing too much, we're creating too much inflammation, we're overwhelming the nervous system. And then there's not enough time for rest, recovery and repair. And then we actually start to see a deterioration in fitness and capacity over time. And this is the same actually as overtraining. So even a healthy, quote, quote, healthy athlete who's constantly pushing their edges too far with not enough downtime, rest time, deloading, they they also start to notice a decrease in performance. And the same is true in the case of chronic fatigue, I always say chronic fatigue is like being an athlete or recovering from chronic fatigue is like being an athlete. You're just working on a smaller scale. And anyway, the flip side is the under coping. And so under coping is the person who's afraid to do anything. And this can maybe be, you know, somebody who feels quite traumatized by their symptoms and they're, they're so afraid of experiencing their symptoms that they become afraid to do anything. And they sort of make their life smaller and smaller over time so that they are avoiding any possible triggers. And that also leads to a decrease in capacity because if we do less and less over time, we're only able to do less and less. And so both of these styles, over coping and under coping, lead to a reduced capacity. And fatigue recovery is all about increasing capacity so if we're doing too little and we're reducing our capacity or doing too much and we're reducing our capacity what is the solution well we have to be goldilocks we have to do just the right amount which is what people will often refer to as the exercise sweet spot So you want to find the sweet spot at which you can exercise, where it's not too little, you're not under coping, and it's not too much, you're not over coping. And this can take a little bit of time, and it can take trial and error, and it can take patience. And in addition, I could also say sometimes it also takes working on other aspects of your health. So I really saw changes in my capacity to exercise when I worked on my nervous system and when I addressed the mold mycotoxins in my body, then it was much easier for me to find that sweet spot. So, you know, I had tried just to find the right balance of exercise, but actually there were other things I needed to do to support my body so that I could find the right balance with exercise. And what is that balance, essentially? That balance is anything that doesn't make you feel worse than what you already do. So that means if you wake up one day and you've got a little bit of brain fog, you're feeling a little bit tired, you're feeling a little bit achy, but it's a beautiful sunny day and you know you would love to just go outside and be in nature and get some sun on your face, you can't do that. You can do that, you can do a 5 minute walk, you can do a 10 minute walk, who knows, maybe you could even do an hour's walk, provided that it doesn't make you feel worse. So if you're waiting for the day when you feel amazing to be the day when you finally step outside and go for a little walk and get some sun on your face, you may be waiting a long time. And during that time, you're under coping and deteriorating. So if you wake up and you don't feel great, but you know that 10-minute walk around the block in the sunshine is not going to make you feel worse than you already do, then you can do it. And that was one of the most helpful lessons for me to learn because sometimes more sort of mentally and emotionally, I needed to get outside and have a little bit of movement and spend some time in nature and get a bit of sun on my face. And... I was maybe not feeling so great. And then it's easy to kind of go into that negative thinking spiral. Oh, you know, if I do this, I'm just going to feel worse and it's going to be so horrible. But instead I changed the story in my head, which was, I can do whatever I can do that doesn't make me feel worse And I remember walks, when I would go for a walk and I would say to myself, just in my head, I can do whatever I can do that doesn't make me feel worse. And that changes the imprint on the nervous system. Because instead of walking and going, oh, is am I going to feel bad? Oh, is that a bit more heaviness in my legs? Or is my brain getting more foggy? And then essentially being your own threat, you're changing the internal dialogue to one which is more... Balanced and curious and empowered, and that is very helpful for building capacity. And you know, even if I did feel a bit more tired, it's like, oh, yeah, that probably shouldn't have done that walk to kind of just get over it and move on instead of obsessing and beating myself up and worrying because none of that is helpful for the nervous system. And obviously in the nurturing resilience program that I run, we, we work a lot with this internal dialogue and how we support the nervous system um, by using our thoughts and our feelings. So once you are on board with the idea that you can do whatever you can do as long as it doesn't make you feel worse. The next step is just to start small. Now I have clients who will just walk for three minutes and that's where they start or maybe three sets of one minute throughout the day. But the goal here is to find that thing that you can do that doesn't make you feel worse And then be able to do it consistently. So for example, if you can walk for three minutes, but then you have to go back to bed for five days, you can't do that consistently. So then maybe you just need to walk for one minute. And then if you can walk for one minute every day for a couple of weeks, then maybe you can walk for one minute 20, one minute 30. You know, the rule of thumb that I've heard is to increase by 10%. I don't know who set that rule. Um, I also think that it's just a guideline. And, you know, maybe you can increase a little bit more. Maybe you can increase a little bit less. That's something that you'll have to play around with in your body. But we really just want to start small and find the minimum we can do each day. And probably depending on your current state of health, maybe... It's not even actually doing any exercise, but maybe it's just that shower where you wash your hair or you cook yourself a breakfast um, or you listen to a podcast, you read a book. There's so many different ways we can think about this, but for the purposes of this episode, I'm focusing on exercise specifically. The next thing to think about is how you can break things up. So for example, maybe you want to be able to walk for an hour. And at the moment, you can walk for 30 minutes pretty comfortably. So instead of doing 30, 35, 40, 45, how would it be to do 20 minutes in the morning and then maybe a little bit of restorative work, some nervous system care, do whatever you need to do in the day, and then 20 minutes again in the afternoon or evening? How would that feel on your body? then you've actually increased your activity levels by 10 minutes, but you've done two shorter bursts. And this is something, actually a strategy I still use today. If I'm very busy and I just want to manage my energy around all the client work I have to do, I don't want to blow myself out with like a really long walk first thing in the morning, but I might do a 20-minute walk in the morning, a 20-minute lunch break walk, and then a 20-minute walk in the evening. And that's actually better for your body because you're moving more regularly throughout the day. You have more opportunities for getting your blood flow, your circulation, draining your lymphatic system. All of these other things that we don't think are happening when we move, that's happening at regular intervals across the day instead of just doing one big chunk of movement and then you're still and stagnant for the rest of the day. So I obviously use the example of walking, but, you know, that could be anything. It could also be when I was um, starting to resistance train again, and I'll talk more about this in the next episode. Instead of doing like a a resistance workout, which would be, you know, several reps and then several sets of exercises, I would maybe do 10 squats in the morning, 10 press-ups at lunchtime, 10 pull-ups in the evening not exactly those numbers not exactly those exercises necessarily but just as an example breaking things up can be really good and it gives your day some structure as well the next thing is to be consistent so whatever you do You shouldn't make you feel worse than what you already do. And here I'll say, and I'll talk about this in the next episode as well, is like a teeny tiny bit worse that you then recover from is probably acceptable. So it's okay to feel tired after you've done a walk and just need to lay down and recover for an hour or so. But if you, if you bounce back pretty quickly, then, you know, that's acceptable. Um, so you want to do whatever you can do that doesn't make you feel worse, and you want to do that consistently, which means in the beginning stages when you're just trying to build up a baseline, it means you want to be able to do the same thing every day. As you get further along on your fatigue recovery journey, you might be doing Some more activities on some days, and then maybe a little bit less on other days to recover because that's how healthy people exercise. You know, healthy people don't do exactly the same thing every day. For example, a marathon runner may do a long run and then the next day they have a rest day. So, In the beginning stages you want consistency and stability because we always want those stable foundations to build on but then later on in your journey that rule changes and I'll talk a little bit about this in the next episode as well so that might mean that every morning you do your three minute walk to the end of the road and back And then over time you're building that up Or then maybe it's a three minute walk in the morning A three minute walk in the evening And so on and so on You're consistently doing it day in and day out Obviously, if you start to then factor in socializing or house chores, or you're going back to work, you want to factor in that there may be other things that are happening as well that are taking your energy. And I think it's always good to focus on one thing at a time. So that means that If you've got a consistent exercise routine, but now you're going to be adding in a bit more socializing, that's your progression. You're not going to progress exercise and then add more socializing in necessarily on the same week. Or, for example, if you're going back to work, you're not necessarily going to start to scale up your exercise and go back to work because you've got those increased mental demands as well. You know, it might only just be for a couple of weeks. You keep your exercise consistent, then you're going back to work or you're socializing more. You feel like you've then established a new baseline with those new introductions. And then maybe you circle back to increasing exercise again. So my recommendation is generally speaking, just focus on one thing at a time. Be really mindful of how different things in your life are impacting you. So then the next thing is progress slowly. And I've already touched on this, but I said the rule of thumb is increase by 10%. This was something that was suggested to me in my recovery journey. I don't actually know the science on this. I don't know um, where it comes from, but it's generally the recommendation is increase 10%. And other things that I've picked up is increase 10% every two weeks. So you have a couple of weeks of consistency. And then you increase. I feel that that doesn't always work so well for women who have a menstrual cycle. Because if we think about the average menstrual cycle, it's 28 days. Which means that if you were to start your two-week period of consistency from day one of your cycle. When you're ovulating, you may be feeling pretty good. So you feel good to increase. But then two weeks after that, you're just coming into menstruation again, you actually might want to reduce what you're doing. So I always just say to women, honor your body in alignment with your cycle. I know that I experienced a lot of exacerbation in my symptoms, depending on where I was in my cycle. And as my chronic fatigue improved generally, then those cyclical fluctuations improved generally as well. But what I would find is that I would have my lowest point in the first 10 days of my cycle. And then I would start to feel a little bit better. So I'd usually write out those 10 days, then maybe make an increase in what I was doing for um, days, let's call it 10 to 17, then days 17 to 24. And then those last four days when I'm not coming down towards menstruation, maybe then start to step back again. So it's pretty intuitive. I feel that there's no exact rule Um, there's not a specific, um, protocol you have to follow. I think it's very much about honoring your body and honoring your needs. And to a certain extent, that is the essence of healing, being able to reconnect to what we need and not only be aware of what we need, but also to honor what we need as well. So then the final thing for today, and we'll talk more in the next episode is to monitor intensity. So when I worked with a physiotherapist, I worked with Zoe from Actively Autoimmune. And I'll say here that Zoe was... Absolutely wonderful. I learned so much from her. Unfortunately, the resistance workouts she created for me just caused too much post-exertional malaise. And now, in hindsight, I understand that that was because of the mold issue I was experiencing. And, you know, she could have been the most brilliant person in the whole entire world ever. And there was nothing else she would have been able to do until that mold issue was solved. So um, this is, again, to highlight the importance of addressing the whole picture. But what I did learn from Zoe was a little bit about monitoring the exercise intensity. And when I was working with her, I was just building up my walking. And we did a little bit of heart rate monitoring and her guidance was for me to stick about 110 beats per minute and to make sure that my walking kept my heart rate under that 110 beat per minute range. Now, that may sound like quite high for some people, may actually sound quite low for some other people because people with chronic fatigue, especially sort of POTS, can have racing heart rates, um, which is when we want to maybe look under the hood and work out what could be triggering that. But um, just having some way to monitor my intensity was very helpful. And in the beginning, I just walked very slowly so depending on where I was in my cycle if I was walking fasted or if I'd eaten something very there were several variables but depending on how I was on a day sometimes I'd have to walk very very slowly to keep my heart rate under 110 beats per minute and I remember um wouldn't be able to do any hills so I would drive down to the harbor near where I live where, where I knew I could park and it was all flat and one day I was walking along the harbor and these two old men like probably in their 70s walked past me and they said you're walking very slowly and I was just like yeah yeah I am and they just obviously had no idea you know what what I was going through but um it was just, it was almost, for me, it was actually quite comical, these two old men who were overtaking me on my walk, but it was just what I needed to do at the time. So, um yeah, I was walking, keeping my heart rate under 110 beats per minute, but I think coming back to this idea of the nervous system, just having that guideline, it helped me feel safe because I knew I could walk, and if I could walk and keep my heart rate under 110 beats per minute, that was a safe zone for me. And whether or not it was really a safe zone for me was irrelevant. Maybe I could have been walking at a higher heart rate. Maybe I should have been walking at a lower heart rate. Who actually knows? But just having that permission from someone in authority, my physio, to say, do this, and I had a guideline, I was being careful with my body, I was being mindful with my body, that just made me feel safe enough to walk. And I would walk along the harbor and then onto the beach because they're sort of very back-to-back to to one another. And then as my heart rate would start to creep up a little bit too high, I would just sit down on a rock and I would do some nervous system regulation work. I'd give myself time for my heart rate to come down. and regulate my nervous system and just really appreciate the beauty around me because I do live in such a beautiful place, which I'm very grateful for. And then I would continue with my walk. And sometimes that little rest and nervous system regulation mid-walk would be, um, you know, once in a walk. Sometimes I need to do it a couple of times in a walk, depending on what was happening. But eventually I could walk further. I could walk faster and keep my heart rate under the 110 beats per minute um, and then eventually I just stopped looking at my heart rate monitor and I just walked and then I started walking up hills and kind of just never looked back but I think it was having just taken the time to do all of the steps that I've spoken about today to start to listen to my own body and use its signals as my guide to know my coping style, which is always to do a little bit too much. So I had my parameters from Zoe, keep your heart rate under 110 beats per minute, doing what I could do, even if it didn't make me feel worse. So even on the days where maybe I didn't want to walk, I knew I could walk, but not feel worse than what I already did. Then starting small, breaking it up, being consistent, slowly progressing, monitoring the intensity. And eventually just knowing intuitively when I was ready to let it go. And at this point in time, I'd say I still didn't know I had the mycotoxins, and I was able to build up to doing three-hour hikes, like not every day, obviously, but you know, on a weekend, maybe do like an hour and a half walk, provided there weren't too many hills and it wasn't too strenuous, and then um, even doing a three-hour hike uh, just as a one-off um, with my husband the one day and you know, feeling tired afterwards, but not feeling the sick, fatigued, post-exertional malaise kind of tired that um, there's a whole different experience. And so I managed to do all of that without even knowing that I had a mycotoxin issue at the time. I couldn't weight train. I couldn't do anything more high intensity or anything strenuous, but I could build up my walking And I would say the biggest thing that made the difference is obviously the strategy of doing things slowly so my body could get used to it and therefore not triggering too much inflammation, which would then overwhelm my body in conjunction with the mycotoxins. But also in that time, I was working a lot on my nervous system and just really building up a lot of positive associations with walking, integrating a lot of visualization into walking. And um, that was probably the thing that helped me the most to build up my walking capacity. So that is everything I want to say in this Episode. In the next episode, what I'm going to talk about is how I took things to the next level. So that was then introducing things like Qigong, yoga, strength training, more vigorous exercise, and I'll share a little bit more about that in the next episode. So, a final request before I wrap up for the day if you have been enjoying these episodes, please head over to iTunes and um, leave me a five star review. Your reviews help other people find this podcast, and that means that more people can get the help and support that they need. Thank you so much, and I'll see you in the next episode.